Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, Adelics? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Welcome. It's time to get back to work today. I hope you're. Uh, I hope you're rested. You didn't annihilate yourself like a child on New Year's. You forty to fifty year old people who might be still trying to bounce back here on January fifth from the mistakes you made on the eve of the first perhaps not mistakes but man it doesn't get any easier does it does not get any fucking easier today is a pretty fucking big day people today on the show i'm going to talk to paul thomas anderson the director of many a great film his current film inherent vice uh is playing in theaters and it expands even more theaters across this large country of ours on friday i saw inherent vice and then I got a screener of it because I'm a, mem- a member of several guilds that votes for awards. Get a lot of screeners. So I'm happy I had the opportunity to watch it again. And I will watch it again and again. Not unlike any of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, I need to watch him at least three times just to get it in my head this expanse of his, uh, of his vision. I, I get angry at his movies sometimes because I watch them and I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, now I'm going to have to see that again almost immediately and then probably another time after that before I can even get into the groove to process the vision here. It's very provocative stuff. There's, it's a, he's a rare artist. He's a rare artist that when you return to his work or her work, a true act of genius in my mind, I may have said this on the show before, a true work of genius is something that you can return to and continues to evolve in meaning for you, which is, you know, that's relative to you anyway, so it's not like it's going to be a general thing. But if you can return to an artist's work and get a different thing or more thing or uh, a whole new thing out of it every time you approach it over the years, that's uh, that qualifies as a work of genius in my mind. And Paul Thomas Anderson has made several. And I'll talk to him about that. I'll talk to him about the current film. I'll go through all the films. We know the films. Boogie Nights, Heart Eight, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love. I'm just going off the top of my head here. There Will Be Blood, The Master, uh, this new one, Inherent Vice. It was interesting talking to him about Pynchon 
because I've been doing a little purging myself today in the last few days. I, I finally, after writing a script, and by the way, can I just say thank you for all the feedback on the second season of Marin, which is up on Netflix now. The number of people that watch it on Netflix is mind-blowing, and it's very exciting for me to see all this feedback uh, coming from the from the season, you know, very sort of uh, you know supportive, reassuring feedback. People are, are enjoying the show. We just we, we we didn't get much of that, and I think that's the beauty of Netflix that people are coming to the show. The first season as well. I'm I'm getting some of those tweets where people are like, "How come I never knew who you were about you know ever in any way?" Uh, I'm glad I'm still a discoverable entity. Obviously, I am. But seriously, I'm glad you're enjoying the show. And if you haven't watched it yet, it is on Netflix. It's so fucking encouraging and humbling and exciting that people are enjoying the show so much. We're deep in work on the next season. We're writing. I just finished my script, which is I'm coming back around to what I was getting into. The script I wrote this season, uh, solo wrote without, you know, we'll we'll get it up on the uh, on the lift and we'll go over it. But it was about I don't want to give away much, but it does involve an ex-wife. And about stuff, about stuff that I have in my house. I have just tons of stuff from all different times of my life. Some of them, you know, stuff from marriages. I'm still using plates. I'm still using the Fiesta wear that I got on my first marriage, which is, but I don't think about it. I don't think I think about it. I think like, you know, I'm just lazy, but it's like, that's fucking ridiculous. I've got a few bucks. I mean, you know, get rid of this shit. To me, it doesn't mean anything, but I don't think, I think I'm lying to myself with that. I think I have a lot of artifacts of different periods of my life with women included and artifacts of those relationships that that keep me comfortable or keep me sort of in unconsciously reminded of my loss or my grief or the pain of the absence. And then I started going through t-shirts and, and my clothes and I just started getting rid of shit. Not even, I'm not going to sell anything on eBay. I go into goodwill with it. You just, you have to make the commitment to let it go. It's like, these are dead items. I mean, I don't know why I negotiate with objects like I'm some sort of fucking hoarder. And, and then there's a stack of t-shirts that I keep because the places they represent either in my life or in reality no longer exist anymore. There are t-shirts that I had to wear at certain points of time. I know I had to wear them for safety. Certain t-shirts that involved uh, an artist of some kind. Like I, I went on Twitter to find this artist that did this series of t-shirts that I had to wear. This, this guy named Michael Roman in uh, San Francisco, a street artist that did a series of shirts with skeletons on them, sort of Day of the Dead oriented. And there was a period where I had to wear these t-shirts in my mind for protection. They were symbolic somehow. I was a little nuttier then. These are magical objects. Things have symbols. Things lead you places. And it's very weird about truth and about Thomas Pynchon and about, uh, you know, and talking to to Paul Thomas Anderson. We talk extensively about Pynchon. My primary experience with Pynchon in terms of how he changed my life was with The Crying of Lot 49, which is a, a sort of uh, historical conspiracy theory that that persists through symbols and uh, and and esoteric communities. And when I first read that, it was like, oh my God, this is real. This is the truth. This is how life works. And I think there is an element that is cryptic about life, obviously. But in terms of those kind of truths, you know, pursuing the big truth, connecting the dots, you know, I had to let some of that go because I had to look at the internal truth, you know? In terms of like some of the movies he's done, like The Master or Boogie Nights and about people who are either in conflict or easily led or looking for something or, 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 or looking for power. These themes 
uh, you know, sort of all come together, uh, a lot of it in Inherent Vice, in a very comedic, very lyrical, it's almost like a movie collage of a time, and you have to follow the signs, follow the signs. But my point being is that, you know, your personal truth, you better get that shit straight before you look for the bigger truths, because if you don't know who you are or where you sit inside, you are going to be taken for a fucking ride, man. That ride is fine, but if it's a big mystery to you, you better get your shit straight, get your vessel in order, learn how to fucking drive it so at least you have some control when the ride starts, when you're stuck in it and you can't get out. Make sure your vessel is intact and you know who's in control of it or you're going to get fucked. I think that's what Pynchon was trying to say. <laughs> Look, let's, you know, this is a long interview. Let's just, let's go talk to Paul Thomas Anderson. He was very gracious and great to talk to. I didn't know what to expect. I decided he was like a, a looming, perhaps tormented, brooding guy. But uh, he was fucking great to talk to. Okay, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's, enough. All right? I hope you're all right. I'm okay. Let's talk to Paul Thomas. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts Anderson and uh, and then I tried to stop and I couldn't stop and I did the patches and I found the lozenge and I was like this is the best thing ever I can just eat my nicotine I can get the buzz I have maximum control over it. I'm not inhaling hot smoke. I can do it in, in bed. I, <laughs> uh-huh. I would wake up with lozenges in my mouth, Paul. But do you feel like a quitter? What? You know. To get off them? Yeah. Here's the weird thing. I don't know where you, if you've ever, how long you've been smoking? How long? Well, I was 18. Right. So that's right. We start when we're kids. Yeah. I started when I was like 14 or 15. Whatever it's holding back, it's all in there. <laughs> Do you know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, your creative output is not stifled, and certainly it does you know, keep your brain busy, but emotionally, it's a little overwhelming to remove the tamper. You know, it just tamps shit down. Yeah. So I don't feel like a quitter. I'm a little scared <laughs> of what, what's going to happen. Do you exercise? I did today. What'd you do? <laughs> I, you, I go you on and off. No, I ran the hills around here. Right. I run. Do you exercise? I run. I well, do yoga. You do yoga. Yeah, because I smoke. Yeah, I got it. But I mean, don't you feel uh, have that moment where you're? How much can you run, really? 
you're right. There is that moment when you realize if I really want to get better at this or keep going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got to stop. <laughs> How much do you smoke? Not much. Uh-huh. I mean, not like I used to. I used to smoke, you know, a pack a day. Oh, you're not even not doing a pack? No, no, no. no. Oh. I mean, if things are hectic or you're on set or things are really stressful. When you're making a movie? Yeah. Pack and a half, two packs a day. If you're around Joaquin Phoenix, <laughs> yeah. he, that's like smoking a pack a day. He smokes like a lunatic. Does he? Oh, God. What, what brand? American Spirits, yellow. What do you smoke? Same. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. See, they weren't even around when I smoked. Isn't that crazy? Well, the whole thing that they put out there was like, you know, we're an all-natural... Sure, man. It's healthy. Exactly. Health food cigarettes. Yeah. And the Indians are getting the money, so don't worry about it. It's really... It's are they even getting cause. the money? No, they're owned by R.J. Reynolds. Right. This is a fucking scam. <laughs> Fell for it again. <laughs> but a anything what? to help justify, you know... It's great. Smoking is great. And in the new movie, Inherent in Vice, everyone's just smoking. Yeah. Enjoying their outfits. Yeah. And smoking cigarettes. <laughs> Everyone's unshaven. It's fucking beautiful. Did you see it? Did I did see it. Good. I went and saw it the other night, but we're not going to start there. Okay. <laughs> Can't start there. I mean, I could. But uh, so you're living out in the valley. You grew up here? I grew up in Studio City. Your whole life? Yeah. Los Angeles, California. Yeah. Born here. Is that shocking? I, I, it's to me, it's a mythical place, Los Angeles, California. When people were born here and they have their whole life here, if they're not celebrities of some kind, I, I, I'm like, how does that happen? Right. This, this is some weird magical dark place to me. You grew up in a magical dark place. It is a magical dark place. It is. It is. And um, you felt that early on. I didn't know any different. I yeah. mean, I, I kind of, I, it's, I'm starting to realize it now, living other places and coming back. But I think there are. Darker, more magical places within this very large city. Like Los Feliz is very dark and magical. In, in what way is it dark to you? I, oh, only in that I lived there for about a year and, you know, the feeling of ghosts was kind of strong. And what I, and not that I ever saw one, not that I ever right. touched one, but just some little echo kind of around that made me feel. Being from the valley, being from Studio City, like yeah. uh, this is this feels like another world. So I just kind of split. Like I can't imagine growing up here, but I was sort of obsessed with, you know, the black and white nature of Hollywood. Like you know, if you look at just look at, at stills of old Hollywood movie stars, you read Kenneth Anger's book, yeah, and your your entire brain gets saturated with this sort of like, what is going on here? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's kind of like if. If Poltergeist had been made, they should have showed that to the city planners and said, just make sure you don't build shit where shit shouldn't be built. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Because it does feel a lot of times that there are there are buildings and places to live out here where where really you shouldn't you shouldn't be. Like whether they're ancient Indian burial grounds or just sort of epicenters of energy where really, you know, yeah. we should stay away from them. And the comedy store on Sunset is probably <laughs> probably <laughs> one of them. <laughs> Yeah, definitely is. It, it's like it's like Burroughs said: is the, the evil was there before anything was built, right? Do you believe? Yeah, oh, I sure do. I mean, I'm sure that those Indians were sort of walking down Sunset Boulevard and said, "Just let's make a left. Just stay away from this yeah, one little yeah. pocket right yeah, here." Yeah, where... I, I, I've often said that it's built over one of the few existing gates to hell. Uh huh. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the evil just comes up through the floorboards, and those who are talented are able to make it funny. 
Well, there's kind of a gravitational pull towards that area, right? I mean, obviously, for, for a, a breed of person. Well, what about that, that fucking Sunset Towers, the, Arga- the hotel? That's sort of notoriously... What is that? I don't know. Have you seen the mural on that place? Have you looked at it with the blimp and the airplanes, that weird... Oh, most... that new mural that they have It's not even there? new. It's it's right over the where you enter. There's some sort of like fresco thing uh-huh. that's been there forever. And I'm like, what is that about? There's a Zeppelin in there, and there's there's planes, and there's an altar on the top. I was very hung up with that shit. That hotel's been curious for a while. I mean, that was abandoned and, and empty. Remember that? One? Yeah, it was you know, gutted when gutted. I was... Yeah. And it was just stood, stood there, this monolith of weirdness. I thought it was like a nest for ghosts. And now it's like, you know, hip central. I mean, you know, I mean, I would, I've never been in one of those rooms, I imagine. Swept there. Fun. The night I swept there was the night of that big earthquake, the Northridge earth- earthquake. No shit. In like 90, what was that, 92, 93? And you were up. Uh, up I was up. Oh, God. Dude, I can't even. There's no end of material when it comes to this town. I mean, there's no end of material, really. I mean, it's endlessly fascinating. But there's something about like, especially, well, let's go back to where you come from. But like in, in, in Boogie Nights and in Magnolia, you tapped into this energy here. Mm-hmm. Don't you feel? Sure, I do. Yeah. Um particularly of the valley yeah which you know which is where you grew up which is where i grew up so i can hold it in my hand and i do feel like i do feel like i could speak about it with some authority without feeling like an imposter you know i mean to talk about greater los angeles and try and dive into what really is going on here i I, it's too big a subject to wrap my mind around but with boogie nights when i remember making that i was like i'm really making a movie about the neighborhood that i grew up in you know (laughs) know, yeah it was not that far from what i knew it was what i knew what did you have siblings many yeah you do yeah how many well my mom and my dad had four kids me and my three sisters and then my dad had a first marriage where he had five really so he had nine kids total do you know those other ones yeah yeah, yeah. You're all cool. Yeah, I'm number seven of nine. Did you grow up with the other ones? In and out. It was. It, they were older by the time my mom came on the scene and had us. They were, you know, which was great for me. They were kind of like of age. They had cars. They we could take us oh, so R-rated oh, movies. So you could and, learn things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. need those. I, 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 there's people I talk to, creative people that they were blessed with the older siblings. Yeah, who are like, here are my records. Here are the magazines and books you should look at, yeah. and this is what we're going to watch. It's absolutely true. <laughs> were you the oldest? I was the oldest. Or, yeah. I had to go out to record stores and make friends with people who worked at bookstores to get my information. Yeah, that's... It was I, harder for me. Yeah, I don't know that I would have had the guts to do that without a little bit of help from my older brothers. And yeah. they, they, they were they were all, they were dirty. They were into like rock bands, and they had rock bands and, and fast cars and stuff. And here in L.A., they were in L.A. too? Yeah, yeah. Really? Well, they came from back east. They were born, uh, they lived in Cleveland and then kind of made their way out. That's where your old man's from? No man is technically from Boston and then spent a lot of time in Cleveland and that's where he met my mom. Yeah. He was notorious in Cleveland. Yes. I didn't realize Did you, this. Were you aware of him at, at all? Not until I stumbled upon some, some research that I didn't mean to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted it all to be organic. But someone had said that your, your dad was in show business, but I had no idea that, you know, he was sort of like this nerd myth. Like, they're sort of like, uh, you know, uh, what, what do you call it? The Kind of a Mondo Video kind of uh, dude. It was a big time thing. And it was funny because we were, I was talking about the Chrissy Hine thing. Yeah. She was from Akron. Right. So people even from Akron, 
like a lot of those cool bands and stuff yeah. were, were deep into this thing that my dad was doing on Friday nights, which is host, hosting horror movies, which is a common thing. You know, everybody, every, local every, every town's station, got sure. a local guy. Right. But my dad just seemed to do it in a way that was, he presented these scary movies, but also let you know how shitty they were at the same time. So his tongue in cheek, and he kind of played on the campiness of it. Absolutely. Right. Um, and yeah, I you know you see them now and they seem a bit tame, but I think they were kind of mind blowing when they were happening. But wasn't he? Didn't he have a shtick? Oh yeah, he stick with the goatee. Yeah, uh, glasses with one lens missing. Yeah, uh, and he would kind of talk like a like a, this, a, kind of like a Transylvanian <laughs> <laughs> accent. Yeah, and he would just say the most bizarre things. It was really about the message he would send is don't don't rat on your friends, don't be a purple kniff, and that was kniff was fink backwards. Right, so don't be a fink. Oxnard was a word that he would just randomly say because he thought it was funny, and I guess this just had people howling, thinking how groovy. And he went under the moniker of Goulardi. Goulardi, yeah. And this was just something he put together. He was basically, what was he, a local TV guy? He was a local TV announcer. Right. He was the booth announcer. Right. And then when these local stations would buy these package of horror films, they needed somebody to go on and, and introduce them. And he said, I'll do that. But he didn't take it seriously or really try to scare anybody. He just kind of took it as an opportunity to completely fuck off and light firecrackers and blow stuff up and be... On TV. On TV, yeah. So it was like the soupy sales approach. What's the soupy sales approach? Well, just sort of like you're kind of doing something for kids, but you're kind of pushing the envelope a right. little bit. Right, right. You know, like it's like, this isn't for kids. Right. What does it mean, don't be a rat? It's true. I mean, I got a bunch of kids running around my house, and I have to remind them. They come, so-and-so stole my thing. Don't be a rat. Don't <laughs> rat your friend. Don't rat on your brother and sister. Do you say that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How many kids you got? Four. Is that just something you did because you grew up like that? Probably. I mean- you're married to Maya Rudolph? That's right. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, it's nice to have a lot of kids running around the house. Really makes you keep, feel good, right? Yeah. It's like having a warm fire. And every once in a while, it's like throwing a bag of cats into a warm fire. Sure. I mean, it's, it could be a nightmare, but it's, it's the best. So your old man, Goulardi, he did this number. There's not there's not much film of him around. Little, little clips you can find on YouTube. You got to understand, he was also uh, partners with Tim Conway. Really? Yeah, they both started out- In Cleveland? Out in Cleveland. Tim Conway's funny. Tim Conway's really funny. And they were kind of a duo where my dad was the straight man, and, and they would do local comedy bits on television. The, the way that it was told to me is that Steve Allen came through town and saw how funny Tim was and said, why don't you come out to Hollywood? And leave that guy here. <laughs> leave that guy behind. <laughs> so, the, you know, my dad needed something to do, so he did Goulardi. And then I think he said to my dad, "You got to get out here." I mean, Tim just, did. Yeah, Tim. Tim said, "You got to get out here. There's work everywhere." And my dad came out, and there was just no work to be found at all for <laughs> did, him. Did him and Tim stay friends? Oh yeah, for sure. Really? I mean, I grew up with him and all his kids. Yeah. With Conway? Oh yeah. Is he still all right? Yeah, he's doing great. Oh good. Um, those guys. That was an amazing thing to grow up around those guys. Well, did you grow up around Carol Burnett in that? She came around a little bit because my dad, dad was the house? booth announcer at the Carol Burnett show. He was? Yeah, that was the job they threw him as a bone because he couldn't get work as an actor. That so. was his first gig in Hollywood. I think so, yeah. As the booth announcer at the Carol Burnett show. So yeah. you're watching, you could theoretically. How old were you? Six. Harvey Corman. Harvey Corman. Lyle Wagner. Yeah. Uh, Vicki Lawrence. Carol Burnett. Tim Conway. Right. That was the crew. Yeah. And, and Harvey and Tim were around more than anybody. At your house? Yeah, we would see them. Yeah. 
If those are the ones, and you want to have people hanging around. The best. And my, there was a guy named Joe Hamilton that was married to Carol Burnett, and he was the producer of the show. Uh-huh. I mean, the coolest guy you've ever seen in your life. The most handsome. He had, like, just blasted by the sun and this white hair and these v-neck gucci sweaters right. and the gucci loafers and i just thought that is the coolest guy i've ever seen in my life i, I want i want i want to i want that job that's the What's guy doing yeah so you were like in it you were in show business yeah it was around were, i mean it's a, but that was the industry your father worked in yeah so you were these are tv business but you know it was actually it was the best of all worlds because it wasn't the kind of show show the show side of it it was actually situations a lot like this because he was an announcer i was always in the back booths right. and, and the control rooms yeah. and that kind of stuff and yeah. seeing that part of it right which still to this day that, that's i mean i'm leaving here and going to another dark control room you are know? you you got what do you got to do? finish off the dvd and stuff like that but Every time I get in those rooms, I go, man, I haven't. I love it. I love this environment. I love this. Well, world. it's very private and it's very interesting. And it's uh, it, what's interesting about what I do is getting used to just hearing your voice. And you're, mm-hmm. you're, it's you know that's what that's all you do. You know, I'm talking and I'm comfortable hearing my voice in my head. Right. And so your dad was a funny guy. Yeah. And and did you get along with him the whole way through? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty. I the, I can't look back and say there was ever a stretch where it well, was. Like any kind of father son. And what about your mom? What she? What did she do? She's good. She was an actress, and she she tried to sort of put around, did commercials and stuff. But I I I I turned to my mom the other day. As I, she was over, and I was trying to get these four kids out of the house. Yeah. And I just got down on my knees and I said, "I'm so sorry for <laughs> every single thing I ever did to you." You know. And she said, "Well, you're well. You're welcome." <laughs> yeah, because. She, it's a full time job. I know. I like. I, I. I guess I'm yet to apologize to my mother. Oh man, yeah. I have to tell you. I, yeah, it made me feel good. Was it genuine at that moment? It really was. It, you uh, needed it, to be done. It, it was. was just, the, it was the most I could muster. <laughs> but it struck you at that moment. It did. That's interesting. And how long ago did you, your dad pass? Ninety-seven. Yeah. Yeah. But he was older. You know. I mean, I, I lost him too soon. But he was older. He was. He was born in twenty-three. Yeah. So he was, I, I mean, it's nuts to me how old he was when he was still having kids. I mean, uh, So did that, he sounded like he was a pretty funny guy. He was a very funny guy. Um, you know, they, one night, I'll tell you a story, Tim Conway, this is a perfect example of the kind of environment that, like, Tim, Tim was over with yeah. my dad, and they were just getting absolutely hammered. <laughs> And Polaroid cameras had just kind of come into to fashion, and yeah. they were sort of accessible. And so they took a picture. Tim wrapped his head in toilet paper, <laughs> and with like just like so he looked like the mummy, could barely see out of it. <laughs> yeah. And they took a Polaroid of Tim. Right. Then they cut the Polaroid up, and they put it on Tim's driver's license. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, "Let's go drive down the street and try and get pulled over." So they fucking went. I mean, hammered, absolutely yeah. hammered, driving down Ventura Boulevard. It's just two grown men. Two grown men, only to get pulled over so they could play the joke so that when the cop said, license, and, and by the way, Tim is, is, is driving the car with the toilet paper on his head <laughs> yeah. so that when the cop says license and registration, he can hand over his license. and Just so the, they could get a laugh. Just so they could get a laugh. I mean, it was that level did of they do insanity. It? Yes, they did it. <laughs> Tim still has the driver's license. He does? Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, it was that, it was really just making each other laugh and messing around with no audience except the cop, if they got lucky to get pulled over. That's how crazy they were. So 
when you have characters, you know, like the Jason Robards character, Magnolia, was, was that in any way, do you work through any of that's dynamic with your father? Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of it wasn't even, I don't know if it's working through it. I was just sort of exp- just regurgitating a cer- certain pain that happened after losing him. Did he know? die of cancer? He did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, very similar to Jason Robards in, in the movie. And um, I didn't even know what I had to work through. I just sort of wrote it out pretty close to as it happened. There's a lot of words in Jason's mouth that never came out of my dad's sure. mouth. But that's how, that you know, that's writing a, writing a movie. Right. But, um, but yeah, it was kind of... Was, he wasn't well either at that time, was he, Jason? He wasn't. No, it was his last movie. And he had gone through his own fight with a couple different cancers. And by the time he came to us, he was... It, it was amazing. He said, I got to bring my uh, oxygen tank, you know? I said, no problem. But he had one scene that was like... It was like four pages of dialogue, four straight pages of dialogue, and he just nailed it. I mean, to be sev- mid-70s, late-70s, sick, dying of cancer, and to sort of rattle off five pages of dialogue, I mean... Heavy, man. Very heavy. Hell of a presence, that guy. Yeah, and he was he was a charmed man, and boy, he would tell us stories, and he was a great guy, really great. So, when did you start making the movies? <laughs> um... Like when did it when did it hit you? I mean, like what we like when you were in high school and shit. Where'd you go to high school? Out in the valley? Yeah, out See, in the valley. What kind of car did you have? I didn't have a car. I mean, I I I, I had a the, the family. We had a family wagon that I I totaled, and my dad said that's it. Well, good good job on that. So I just always hitched rides with people. Eventually, when I got out of high school, I had a Pontiac uh, Saber, mm-hmm. Little Saber, I think it was called. And I, but I always made movies. I mean, from the second there was the second I realized what it was and I could do it, and there was a camera. My older brother had an eight millimeter camera, but when video cameras came around, whenever that was, eighty, yeah, seventy nine, eighty, right. And there was one, and you realized you could do that. It forget it. I mean, it was just all you were a we kid did. then because I graduated in eighty one, and I'm fifty one. You're what forty four. All right, so you're definitely... So I was 10, I was 11. Right, and I mean, when you just, could do that, when your dad probably came home with one. My dad came home with one, yeah. and it was like, there was nobody else that was going to hold that camera but me in the house. It was uh-huh. like, that's mine, I want that, you know? Yeah. I just, yeah, from there. And was it, what drove you to make movies? I mean, like, I mean, I know that like people like Spielberg and people always have that experience of like, you know, making the stop action shit and doing yeah. the Super 8 stuff and experimenting with the idea. But it seems that you were absorbing something at some point because all of your movies have very specific tones. So, you know, when did you start understanding it on a sophisticated level? Or were you just doing it as a goof? I was just doing it as a goof. I mean, but you mentioned those Spielberg and all those guys. Those are the guys that were making movies like you sort of discover as a kid. I was six, five, six, seven years old seeing yeah. Jaws, seeing Star Wars, seeing all that stuff. That yeah. like blows your mind. And then... I guess when you when you sort of graduate out of that a little bit, you know, the first time I saw Raging Bull or first time I was sort of exposed to Jonathan Demme's movies or Robert Downey Sr., people like that, and then you saw Altman, and then everything started to kind of be, it started to get really, it got more interesting. It, got, it felt more like that, that, that kind of, it felt like, 
I don't know, but if I were ever to do it, maybe it would look like that. That was kind of the feeling. Those things had it like they they seemed grittier, more real, challenging. It just spoke to me, right? Right, know? like weird, yeah, raw, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, Robert Downey Senior movies. They're like, what's going on here? Yeah. So Putney Swope. Putney Swope was the first one I saw, um, and that changed my life. Entirely. Same with Louis. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, and I think I came to it the same way that he did, is that you're just sort of like, it was going into the video store the same way by somebody might go into a record shop and just devouring whatever you could find and looking for that thing, like, where's that well, thing that's going yeah. to open my mind and getting lucky enough to come across that video box right. with this great poster right. and putting it in and saying, this is it. It's like I've been searching for something that I didn't even know I, what I was after. What was know. it about that film that made you go like, holy shit? You can do this? What was that, the... That. Holy shit, you can do this. <laughs> um, you can talk like this. You can have... You can be this funny. You can be this... You can you can, you can can um, insult everyone. You can be political. I mean, it was... It was... That it was funny first. It was like... It, it, it was... It was politically charged. It was intelligent. It had something to say. And it was experimental, but that was all secondary because it was funny first. And that was like, that was what was cool about it. You know what's trippy is that this movie, Inherent Vice, is, is really the closest you've come to Putney Swope. Yeah. <laughs> trying. I no. said that to Bob. I said, I, try, I was just trying to do what you would do. He said, I wouldn't have done it like that. <laughs> you, talk, you talked to him about Inherent Vice? Yeah, I did. But I mean, like all the things you just listed off. I mean, if I listen, if I look at your other films, I mean, they're in there. Mm. I mean, you know, on some layer. But because of the way Pinchin writes and because of the time that is being depicted there, everything is loaded on all levels with all of that. Yeah. You know, who's in charge? What's the power structure? You know, where are the drugs at? I think it's something with these guys. Um, I. I think Pinchon and Downey Sr. are probably about the same age. So guys, and they're, and they're both from New York, too. So I don't know what they were really into. I can think it was Lenny Bruce, probably. Right. You know, who else might have been really influencing them? Spike Jones, I know, was a big influence on Pinchon. He's talked about that. But there's something in the water with these guys and how they kind of could look at the world and such a kind of compassionate but upside down. Like, they didn't give a fuck, but they gave a fuck. Well, the weird thing is, is that you got to figure that that was the turning of the, like, after you know Eisenhower and, and then after the Vietnam War shit just turned upside down I mean you know they come through the Beatniks and Lord Buckley and Lenny Bruce and then all of a sudden like fucking you know right. everything's unleashed right and those guys grew up leashed it's funny you mentioned Eisenhower because I saw this interview with Downey Sr. the other day from the first Toronto Film Festival so this must have been I, he was there with a film called Chafe Elbows this must have been 66 whatever mm -hmm. and he said Eisenhower's the best president we ever had because he didn't do anything. Yeah. I want a guy who does nothing. I want a president that goes, plays golf, and doesn't do anything. And he's talking about Nixon. He says, we've got a real problem coming because this guy doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> right. <laughs> and A was dead serious as he's talking about it. And it really hit me like, yeah, things were peculiar. I mean, it must have been really horrifying to get a president of the United States who has zero sense of humor. But I also think, uh, you know, at that time after the war and once when Ellsberg put out the Pentagon Papers sure. and, and, and stuff was being revealed, yeah, that, you know, because you're making a movie by a guy who sort of invented hippie conspiracy literature yeah, and, you know, and created the idea that there's multiple levels of, of power and there are secret societies and you're never going to get to the bottom of it and, and it's almost like a futile search. Right. But that's the journey. Yeah. And like, and their entire reality was shattered. 
Yeah. And they, it's like, how could they believe anything? Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, it's nice to understand that now because unfortunately when I was growing up, I don't know if you... Sometimes the parents of friends of mine would be just sort of like, oh, the 60s, man. And it kind of became like this vague Joke. annoyance, like, what are they going right, on about? Right, right, And maybe they were talking about something else and right. they weren't clear-headed about it. But when you put it in the terms that you just did, yeah. it, it really must have felt like a, a nuclear bomb dropped on all your... On culture. Yeah. And then like the, the, the people that were able to sort of deal with it were like, all right, brave new world. <laughs> right. Let's go. Right. When's the party start? Right. <laughs> So you didn't go to school for movies? No, not really. I mean, I say not really in that I, I went to... Um, I No, I didn't go. You didn't go to college? I did go to college for a second. I went to Santa Monica City College yeah. for a second, and I went to Emerson College for in a Boston? year. In Boston? Yeah. Really? What year? Did you know any of my friends? Did you make friends there? Not really. Uh, I a lot of cats went there. Dave Cross went there. I didn't know uh, David Cross. Dennis Leary went there. Dennis Leary was a, was before me. Steve Brill. Are you from Boston? No, I went to college in Boston. I lived there for a long time. Where did you go to college? Went to Boston University. Right. I did five years undergrad at Boston <laughs> University. Did a year at Curry College out in Milton. Did my uh -huh. time. I lived there. Then I went back and started my comedy career there. I've been in and out of Boston a long time. I love Boston. All right, so you drop out of college. Is that what happened? Or you just yeah, didn't go back? I just didn't go back. You didn't, you didn't, it didn't stick in your head that was something you needed. That's interesting. But, I, but you know, I mean, in in that arrogant way, I felt like I was, I felt like, uh, what do I need this for, man? I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like a card-carrying professional already. I've been doing this since I was 10. <laughs> yeah, you know? I've got a camera. <laughs> I've got a camera. And I think it was just, it just, it just felt like a drag. It doesn't, it didn't really, and I, and I, and I would have to say that probably was just because I didn't find a teacher that kind of spoke to me. The funny thing was, is when I was at Emerson for that year, David Foster Wallace, who was a great writer who was not known then, was yeah. my teacher. He really? was an English teacher. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Is that what you were studying? Yeah. And I, my, you know, it was the first teacher I fell in love with. And I'd never found anybody else like that at any of the schools that I'd been to. Which makes me really reticent to talk shit about schools or anything else because it's just like any place. Like if you could find a good teacher, man, I mean, I'm sure school would be great. So why didn't you stay? He left. So you were there with him for a year. Yeah. And were you? You spent a lot of time with you him. You know, I didn't. No, I didn't stay. And in that classic move, I thought, oh, you know, I'm. I, I want to get to New York. That's where I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed. I'm supposed to go to NYU, you yeah. know, because it had this good rep film, and yeah, all yeah. that. The film school, or the New film York? school, yeah, yeah, yeah. And dummy that I am, I did it, and I got there, and I thought, oh, I don't want to be here. I wish I was back in Boston, you know, taking English classes. Great place to go to school, Boston. Yeah. Did you spend a lot of time with David Foster Wallace? No, just in class. Oh, really? Yeah. You weren't one of those guys that after class you're like, hey, uh, can, can I talk to you? No, uh, I, I, I called him once. On the, he, was, he was very generous with his phone number. He said, call me if you got any questions. Right. I called him a couple times. Yeah, what'd you say? I what? ran a few ideas by him about this paper that I was writing. I was writing a paper on um, Don DeLillo's white noise. And I'd come Hail up- Hail of bullets. Yeah, and I'd come up with a couple crazy ideas. And he, I just, I don't remember the conversation well, but I just remember him being real generous at like, you know, midnight, the night before it was due. You, know? oh, you were freaking out? All yeah. jacked up? <laughs> yeah, basically. I'm almost done, man. I'm <laughs> I was, it was like, I think I'd written a pretty good paper. Right. It was like cooking a pretty good dish and at the last minute just panicking and oh, thinking, yeah. I got to add some more shit on this on or, top of or it. Or you missed the point. Like, oh, that's what it's about. Right. Ugh. Yeah. 
I'm just, there was no cut and paste back then either. If you typed it out, you were. That book was a life changer for me, man. Was it really? A little bit. I'd love to go back and read it again. I would too, actually. Yeah. Did you read Gravity's Rainbow? You can be honest, man. No one's going to judge you here. (laughs) I still haven't gotten to Gravity's Rainbow. No one has. And few people, and the, and the, you know, the, you know, you ask the people who who have done it, the people that are like, I got through it. It's like, and I got through it. I mean, it's um, it's nice to have lying around the house. You know, makes you look. You smart, started everyone. So, what is it? A screaming I, comes across the sky. Yeah, you got screaming comes across the sky. I mean, it's all down. Like, it's got to be downhill from that. The best opening line of a book ever. Yeah. Um, I I need to try it again, and I think I could now. He's got a way of writing that makes you think he knows things that we don't know, you know. Exactly. It's, it, even in the exchanges that you were able, and it was no small task to, to make a movie script out of his writing, uh, you know, in terms of dialogue. Mm-hmm. But, but hearing it come out of actual people was sort of exciting mm-hmm. because it does, it does, there is that weird kind of like, are they going to get to what, what's being hidden mm-hmm. is what it is. Mm-hmm. Like there's always something being unsaid or, or intentionally hidden mm-hmm. or, or, or they're just not quite, <laughs> don't quite have it yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it, you know. But let's go. Okay, so now how did like what happened with Heart Eight that changed your life? I I just it was a you know, that w- I was way too young to be given the keys to the car. I think How old were you? 23. And what was the movie called originally? Sydney. And you wrote it because of why? I wrote it cuz I had to cuz it just came out. Why that character? Good question. I loved this actor named Philip Baker Hall. Still love him. Yeah, and um, you use him a lot. Yeah, you used him a few times. Yeah, yeah, and um, and and honestly, I can remember just starting to write one day, a Jan- January torrential downpour. I was living with my dad up in Coldwater Canyon, and I just started writing, and that's what came out. And then uh, went to make the movie, but it I, wasn't based on anything. Not really. Yeah, it was based on stuff. I'd been working in Reno. I was I'd been up I'd, I'd spent some time up in Reno. Yeah. Um and I was coming off experiences there of watching old guys that seemed to live Where'd in Where'd you casinos. see Baker Hall? Secret Honor. Uh-huh. Midnight Run. Uh, the long list of great character parts where he would come on and be the best coolest looking thing in the Secret movie. Honor is that the Altman? That's the Altman movie. The Nixon movie. Yeah. Who he didn't play Nixon. He played Nixon. It's just him in a room. That was him? Yeah. Why didn't I know that? That was astounding. It's great. And it's like not one that everyone knows. Mm-mm. But he was always around and the he, he would be this, he looked like somebody who just stepped out of the 1940s, like one of those great character actors you see in those movies. So and you saw him as the character? Absolutely. And I heard his voice as the character. And I was writing um, and I kept thinking of, you know, another actor who had just started out that I'd been seeing a lot, John C. Riley. Right. Who'd been in like maybe five or ten films at that point, but I just thought, my God, this guy's so good. Yeah. So I went and I made that movie and and got through it somehow. You know, I just bluffed my way through directing. Well, you got to deal with who? It was a company called Reicher Entertainment. Who, and you 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 showed up with the script or yeah? But you got to understand that at that time, probably based on the success of Pulp Fiction and a couple other small independent films, there was a lot of cash floating around. From these cable companies. Yeah. So if you could make a movie for under two million bucks, they could kind of sell it off piece by piece with just enough kind of genre elements and a, and a couple cast names, and you could just go make your movie. Right. 
And I was bluffing my way through it, and I kind of like I should have had a ninety-minute movie, and I cut together this like two and a half hour thing, and I thought, you know, I had to like plant a firm <laughs> stake, like I'm not changing a frame of it, and they're yeah. like, I don't know about that. But really, it was I only I'd only been working on it for three or four weeks, and I just I hadn't had time to, to cut it properly. To cut it properly, and I was just bluffing, man. I mean, I was just completely making it up as I was going along. And so, what studio were you dealing with? There was no studio. It was just this company, this little cable company that had some cash, and they were going to sell it to a distributor here. So what happened with it, ultimately? Ultimately, it came out in about four or five theaters. And But how did the cut happen? Why is it not called what you wanted it to be called? It was a long, sad history of going through a rigmarole with this company, and eventually I, I, I won on the cut of the movie. Well, what had happened was actually they said... You can do what, at a certain point, it was just a war of attrition that they realized that this, this, this skinny, annoying kid is not going to leave us alone. Because that really was just sitting outside their houses going, I want my movie. They weren't going to release it? They, they weren't were... going to, they were going to release it. They were going to release another cut of it. And they finally said, they put it into my lap and they said, look, if you can put together your version of the movie, uh, you can have it. And that, that was, that was a lot of dough that it was going to take to do that. But I just signed on to make Boogie Nights. So I took all that money and I said, okay. And I paid for it and I did it. And, and then What do you mean? So you, but you, you so I had to finish the film. I had to really finish. We went through the process of making the movie. Right. We edited the movie. They saw it. They said, we don't like this. I said, I like it. I mean, I had whittled it yeah, down to 90 right, minutes. Right. And I said, we don't like it. We've got bigger and better ideas. And they changed the music. They changed the title. They changed... Uh, they changed pretty much all that you could change. Yeah, and I said I just can't I can't live with myself. I think I'm going to jump off a bridge. And they said uh, too bad. <laughs> and then we got lucky that it was a version of the film that I made and that was sent to the Cannes Film Festival, and they invited it over. So a couple th- started good things started coming our way. And eventually, actually through their their goodwill, they did say, fine, you know, if you want to do this, you can do it, but we're not paying for it. So if you can come up with the cash to reconstruct your version, you can do it. So that's where I took the money from Boogie Nights. I paid to finish this film. And why did you change your name? I didn't. That was, that was that one moment where they said, we'll give you everything, but... And I just said, uh, okay, if I win everything else, you get the name, and it's fine with me. So it wasn't that huge of a mind fuck. It was emotionally a, a huge mind, and emotional, and, and, and it was a fuck in every way. It was just like baptism by fire getting into Hollywood. It was crazy to go through that, and I didn't know how to deal with it. I was too young. I didn't know how to deal. Well, what was the, the main thing you learned out of that experience? Mm. Was it a control thing? Yeah, I suppose. Um I think I went into my next situation thinking that the lesson I learned was to be paranoid, be protective, <laughs> and don't trust anyone. And fortunately, I got to work with a great studio and a guy named Mike DeLuca who was able to see what I had gone through. He said, no, no, trust me and, and, and put your faith in me and you can work with me. And he was your producer? Yeah. On Boogie Nights? Yeah. And he sort of paid for the film and made the film. And that really- What studio? New Line. Uh-huh. Which made a- you know, a bunch of great films back in the 90s. In your mind, so the idea for Boogie Nights came from where? From my, from pornography, from my life, from, yeah, from all that stuff. Right, but you, it started out as a, a short piece? It did, yeah. Which was a comic piece? Yeah, it was kind of like making like a fictional documentary, you know, that Spinal Tap style, yeah. like about a- How a long fiction. was that? Half hour. 
Okay, so that was a Dirk Diggler character. Yeah. Who played it in the short? This guy named Mike Stein, the only guy I knew that had long hair, and he wanted to be an actor. So, But it was a, it was a goof. Yeah, it was a fuck off. Yeah, for sure. And so that evolves into Boogie Nights, which is not really a goof, right. but there's comedic elements. Sure. But you didn't shoot that one as a comedy. Boogie Nights? Yeah. We were laughing a lot when we made it. No, obviously. But, um... But no, I mean, I think by then, yeah, it, it things settled, and and the, doing something about pornography got a little bit more well-rounded rather than just laughing at, at the goof of it all. In your mind, what's that movie about? Boogie Nights. Yeah. I I I don't even remember now because I feel like I'm just regurgitating things that I that I've read about it over the years. That it's about family, surrogate family. Yeah. And I suppose that really is what it's about, you know. And it's about filmmaking. Yeah. It's about the valley. It's about family. It's also about the, the like, there's a monumental moment that, you know, the shift from film to video was a big fucking deal. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where you brought in the heavy. That's where you yeah. brought in Hall to deliver the news. <laughs> that's right. Right? Yeah. I mean, these stories are good. These kind An end of a certain kind of innocence. You know, that always sort of makes for a good thing. And I think that's what's going on there. It's singing in the rain, basically. It's like, you know, what happens when we got to start talking? You know, what happens when video comes in? Now anybody can make a porno movie? Yeah. What the fuck? What, you know. Now, how much porn did you grow up with outside of consuming it? I mean, did you know houses in the valley? Did you? Yeah, yeah. You uh, did? <laughs> there was one across the street from my grandmother's house. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God. And I, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't have put two and two together if she hadn't been so indignant about it all that that she saw this van there all the time and the windows were blacked out. And, yeah. And, you know, if you waited long enough, you would see some pretty suspicious-looking characters come coming in and out of there. Yeah, yeah. And then I remember... I remember so well looking at the frame of the front window. It was a kind of a bay window in the front of the house. And any time I would watch a porno film, I'd be looking for that bay window. I'd be like, where's that bay? I wonder if that's in that house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like I saw it a few times, but I don't know. It's a pretty standard bay window in a valley. And then you also like dealt with some of the drugs and some of the John Holmes story. Yeah, the there was a great Rolling Stone article that that's I read. That fucking thing was mind-blowing. That was... There was two things. That That article was gigantic to me to help figure some things out and also do you remember a show called a current affair yeah they did a piece on shauna grant mm -hmm. who was a porn star who had a really sort of tragic end and she committed suicide but those two things were really like this sort of bridge the gap between growing up around it knowing what it was having a feel for it and and really seeing a, a fuller story the heart of darkness it. yeah but still, like the the it, it's sort of a beat. Like Burt Reynolds really stayed steady for you on that one, didn't he? Yeah, <laughs> he did. <laughs> oh, man, Burt Reynolds. Well, how was that? Tough. Yeah, really tough. Um, he was like huge when we were kids. Oh, Smokey and the Bandit, Hooper. Yeah, I mean the, the longest yard. The that long, was before. Oh, yeah, before us, but. yeah. The longest yard was a little bit before, but believe me, I saw that on TV, and Great. it was all part of just game ball idolizing him. You know, Great. Um, Hooper was a big one for me. Yeah, you know when he would just the beginning when he just put on these pads as the stunt man, and um, and yeah, I think 
there's a, there was a, again a big distance between that time and when we were working with him and he was tough but ultimately it was great and it was worth it was he tough because he didn't trust you i think so i think that's for sure that's one element of it i think that he had, i mean he had a lot of goodwill i mean we all came and we were all excited to work with him and i think to put myself in his shoes for a second he a lot of us were first just starting out you mm-hmm. know um Maybe he'd seen Riley in a couple things, and there were a few people. And, but I think he felt pretty quickly. He sized it up and thought, "This I am slumming it, and I don't know how I got here." Oh and, yeah, and just wasn't feeling good to him. That's funny because they get to a certain age where they don't really keep up. Right. So like maybe he saw some of those people. You know what I mean? Right. Maybe he saw Riley, but you know well, he's down in Florida running his school. Right. But, <laughs> so, but you know what? Too. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I can only guess here, but. You know, we didn't have any money, and you go from being the biggest movie star in the world, and you're in a trailer, and you've got to share the trailer with three different people. Maybe that's an element, but he, he and then again, he was, a, he was a team player to a certain point. He really kind of, like, outdid himself in vulnerability-wise, yeah. you know, and, and sort of being the rock. What is it with you and Ricky Jay? Oh, come on. You love Ricky Jay? <laughs> <laughs> Ricky Jay, um, actually funny, the uh, Burt... Bert, Reynolds and Ricky Ricky Jay had the obligation when Mark and Bert are in this big fight scene out at the pool and yeah. he's coming at Mark he's saying get out of here you know you're high and all this kind of stuff and Ricky Jay had the job of holding Bert back which right. is like not a job that Ricky should have you know <laughs> Ricky has these <laughs> magician's hands and yeah. everything else and Bert started to improvise and Mark says to to something like you know uh, I haven't been up for two days he says you don't look good you've been up for two days you've been doing blow everything else he says I haven't been up for two days and Bert said nevertheless you look you don't look good and I'm not going to shoot you this way and so every time Bert would say nevertheless I kept noticing this something happened over Ricky's face I said what's going on and he said I can't I'm almost gonna laugh. I, I, I'm, whole, I'm suppressing laughter when he says "nevertheless," <laughs> and I said, "Why?" And he told me this great story of being at a football game where this um, woman is being introduced to sing the national anthem, and her name is Helen uh, Helen Helen Forrest or whatever yeah. it is. And they uh, said, "Now to sing the national anthem, Helen Forrest," and somebody in the stand screams. Helen Forrest sucks cock. Yeah. And the announcer says, nevertheless. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> it's a long story to tell, but I swear, and every time I see, the, you know, if the movie's on TV or I see it, you yeah. can see Ricky Jay when Bert says, nevertheless, just like, <laughs> because of that trigger. Right. So any anytime I hear the word nevertheless, I think I'm going to explode. So what movies were informing you through that? Through Boogie Nights? Yeah. Well, Goodfellas was a big yeah. thing, you know. I mean, that was a kind of like way to look at, you know, that kind of energy, that kind of cocaine energy, sure. but also too that kind of like, like a subculture, like a kind of like a tribe of people, right? Right. And, right. and like tell and that insulated, was insulated uh-huh. in their own little yeah. hierarchy. And yeah. here's the chief, and here's the si- side people, and and also they can only socialize with themselves because at that time you know sex worker you couldn't just be out having dinner parties they weren't empowered yet right right you know it was a freak show yeah um 
that was the biggest thing. I mean, Nashville, of course, and sort of the way that you have sort of multi-characters and sort of intersecting lives and all that kind of stuff. But That's something kind of moves through. That Altman thing kind of moves through you in a couple movies. Yeah, for sure. In the last and the newest one a lot, right? Yeah, the funny thing is it was the first time I really tried to... I mean, I you know, I had to size up. I mean, I, there's some similarities to The Long Goodbye, but I, I just thought, you know, I don't need to do another... Altman movie. I didn't quite feel that. I mean, that would that. I think the long goodbye is pretty sparse. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is and this is not sparse. Altman. I mean, I think the long goodbye and Nashville, seeing them for the first time was probably one of the biggest holy fucking shit moments of my life. What the f- I, I, really I look at this? Yeah, for sure, for sure. But um, but with this one. I remember thinking, I've got to try to forget that this film exists, The Long Goodbye, because it's, there's similarities. You just have got a detective thing and all that, but just put it to the side. Don't even think about what it. What about The Big Lebowski? And that came into my mind instantly when I read the book. I was like, well, fuck me. Okay, there's a lot of parallels here yeah. between what Pinchon has written and The Big Lebowski, which is an all-time classic for sure. And again, it was working through that and going, you just got to ignore it. And, and, you know, obviously I know it exists. I know every word of it and I love it. But what's Pinchon on about here? And what's this thing? I think you nailed be? that. Yeah. We're, gonna, um, we're almost going to get there. I'm not done with the other stuff. <laughs> you in a hurry? Not at all. I'm fine. As a matter of fact. Have a cigarette. All right. Do you need water or anything? I You're do. On... You, you, you do? Just a sip of water or? No, they've got this right here. You want me to go get some? I don't want you to leave. I won't leave, man. I'm not going to leave you out here. I like being here. This is just like it is in the um, the Bob Dylan <laughs> the Bob video. video. That's your point of reference. All right, so now let's let's just do Magnolia. I'm going to do the same question again. In your mind, what is that movie about? Like, if you were to say one one poetic line, give me a haiku. My dad. The whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just lost my dad, and I wrote a movie. It was like that. I remember I remember talking to an oncologist on the phone who was essentially telling me that there was no way my dad was going to make it. And the and and one of the first things that popped into my mind was, you know, you're telling me that frogs are falling from the sky. And I remember that kind of just popping into my mind because Michael Penn introduced me to the idea of rain of frogs and so that had been rattling around and rain of frogs as in biblical? Yeah. Um biblical or uh, or, or or the non-biblical version of Reign of Frogs, which is just, you know, sort of clippings of stories where sort of bizarre occurrences would happen where a farmer wakes up and there's a field of frogs and there's nowhere. Oh, so that there's a folktale yeah. of some kind. Yeah. There's precedent. Yeah. I thought I thought hearing that your dad is going to die is as bizarre as, as hearing that frogs are falling from the sky, mm. you know. So, so it was about the death of your dad. Now, where did... How... Like, obviously, with the Robards character, and I'm going from memory, and I remember having this feeling about that movie. Like, I've had struggles with your movies before, where I've had to sort of, like, can repeatedly go see them, because, I, I, you know, I felt like, I, I'd walk out of your movie sometimes, and I'm like, what does that guy want? What does he want from me? Now I gotta go see that again. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Like, all right, this is the fifth time I'm going in to see this movie. I got to turn something off to let something in here. Right. So, 
What, is that, is that, do you take that as an insult? No. Well, no. I th- I think what ma- what it makes me think is of of times where I've felt that way with filmmakers. I think fuck this. I'm not coming back. You know, <laughs> which is probably how I'd feel about my movies if I saw them. I'm not going back to this. No, but I have to go back. But, I have to go back because they demand it. You make movies that you know, even if they bother you at first, it's a lot to reckon with. Right. And you know, in Magnolia at that time, you loaded that thing up. Yeah. That was a, an emotional like hurricane on all fucking levels. Yeah. But you know that was like one of those moments in time where you just I, I had enough I had enough vinegar and confidence and and I wasn't really editing myself um that and this sort of open wound and and all that stuff came out and certainly don't I don't look back I look back proudly at that and um well you should. Yeah. But if you were given the opportunity to to do another cut of it, oh, I'd slice that thing down. I'd cut. <laughs> it's right, way, okay. it's way too fucking long. Good. Oh no, it's 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 unmerciful how long it is. It's, it's no, I liked it though, and I liked the frogs. But it seemed like there was a whole story in there. If I'm remembering it properly, there was one tan- like one trajectory that could have just been taken out. Yeah, and maybe a few. Um, yeah, you won't get any. Yeah, I won't defend it. Julianne Moore was genius. Yep. Like that, like that felt that felt like out of life. I mean, was that something you had to deal with? Did yeah. you was your father married to somebody else at that time? Yeah, he was. He'd gotten married again late in his life, and um, and it was a tragic. It was a sort of tragic end for this woman, really sweet woman, but she just couldn't handle his sickness, and she sort of had a sickness of her own, and and it all kind of tumbled forward very, very in a pretty similar way to the way that it is in the movie, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you're dealing with something like that, you you at the, and and thankfully I didn't. Was have she much any, younger? Not much younger, but right. she was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I just sort of I was I was putting it all out there, not really even thinking twice, loading it up. Yeah. And what was the the Tom Cruise character to you? That was just a great character. I mean, really, that it was, was. But but what sparked that? Heard about a guy named Ross Jeffries who did those things. And um, kind of got obsessed by him, and and just just couldn't resist. When I was writing it out on the page, and I would look at this thing that these guys, this guy was right? saying, yeah, it was just too good. It was like, well, I've got to do this somehow, you know. <laughs> Were you astounded that Tom said yes? I, a little bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but we 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 I'd met him, and he'd wanted to do something together, which was a vote of encouragement, you know, from him. And I was kind of in the middle of writing it, and then I just started to sort of tailor it, thinking if he wants to do this, then let's do it. Before I before we go on, I forgot. Like you know, like I can't look at Alfred Molina without thinking of that scene. Do you know you ruined that guy for everybody? The firecracker. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that scene is like one of the greatest scenes ever put on film. Thank that, you. That song and that guy, Sister Christian. Yeah, it's over. You know, you just, they're inseparable now. Well, that is a scene that really is those firecrackers. Where did that come from? It's a steal from Bob Down. It's a steal from Putney Swope. It's a little bit of a steal from Putney Swope because he's got this character, Wing Sony, who shows up, who's got a, an assistant in the background who's just randomly throwing firecrackers in the hallway of their okay. ad business. And I think the other thing was that my dad always had an obsession with firecrackers. He was blowing stuff up as Goulardi, and, I, you know, I didn't really... I thought it was a good idea, but, man, when you get on the set for the first time and you're in a tiny little you know, set like yeah. this, and one of those, that first firecracker goes off, and everybody jumps, and it's so fucking loud, I, that's when I thought, this might be pretty good. Well, it's, 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 it's a comic scene. 
Yeah. Even when he gets, when he starts, the, the weird thing is, the guy he's based on, Eddie Nash, is. there's no way to make that guy funny. Right. <laughs> you know, but somehow or another, between that little Japanese kid yeah. and, and Alfred Molina with his robe flying open yeah. and his half effeminate disposition yeah. was completely comedic. Yeah. But the true story of that guy was menacing, man. Yeah, no, it got, it, it went dark very fast read that rolling stone oh my god yeah it is weird you made it it is lighthearted, dude it's still kind of uplifting <laughs> well you know but i found shortcuts uplifting i'm a freak like i thought shortcuts was like a celebration of life somehow yeah yeah i yeah i i have i have the same feeling i mean look if you can get out with a low body count, it's uplifting. I suppose. Did you watch seventy? Did you? Have, when was the last time you watched Freebie and the Bean? Do you realize how many fucking people went down? Like you know, in seventies comedies, like those weird buddy cop you know movies. I don't know when they stopped killing people, but they certainly didn't give a shit in the seventies. No, they didn't. I mean, well, they didn't <laughs> up up until the late eighties when when Mel Gibson was running around killing people in Lethal Weapon. I mean, they really there was the higher the body count, the better in those. You're things. just laughing through it. No, I know. Weird. I know. I know. And also, I noticed in Magnolia that, like, the one thing that stands out in my mind is you zoomed in on a Freemason's ring. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I'm like, that's it. It's there. Yeah. Why'd he do that? Now I'm all fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Ricky J had a Freemason's that's ring. That's absolutely on. right. And he says, we met upon the level, but we're parting on the square, which what is. What is You of, were yeah. in such deep grief, but <laughs> obviously you were going into very dark places. Well, that you know, bl- blame Michael Penn for that. He's he's the one who got me on all that stuff. Oh, really? I, I, I lent him a couple of my Freemason books. So really, he's oh, he's, a- he's 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 way in deep with all that stuff, and it and it, <laughs> he's obsessed. Yeah, still. I don't know, but I can't imagine that it was an obsession or an addiction that went away. I think he, he it was not just the passing fancy. Punch Drunk Love. What, all right, what what was that movie about? Love, baby. Love. Yeah. That was a love story. Yeah. But like for me, like that movie, that was one of those ones where I walked out and I'm like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> what is he doing? So. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I could see that reaction for sure. You know, after Magnolia, I'm like, what what, what, ha- what happened? Go from Robert Altman mm. to Truffaut? <laughs> what is that movie? That's just a movie about falling in love. I mean, I, that was just a way, honestly, that was, I remember that movie being like, we'd made two movies in a row and we'd gotten pretty good at it and felt like we had the job and just wanted to dismantle how you had worked before. And I didn't know what that meant. And dismantle I, how who had worked before? Uh, all of us on the crew and- you Sandler? Know, maybe Sandler was part of that Why too. Why Sandler? Oh, well, I love him. Yeah, I love him. Um, yeah. I loved the movies that he was making at that time, and like uh, Happy Madison, ha- uh, Happy Gilmore, Happy Gilmore, uh, Billy Madison, Billy Madison, and Big Daddy is big da- it, those are the big three. Those are my big three. Yeah. So, what was your idea for him? Just to work with him, period. Yeah. But Adam would always do something in movies that I basically just stole, where that when he would flip out. It didn't. It just seemed. It's. It. It. It appeared to me to be a guy who was really flipping out, and who you know not wasn't faking it, right? And that there was a darkness, and and it was so exciting when he would flip out. Yeah. That when he really did go there, you couldn't see the whites of his eyes anymore, and that was exciting. And you know, you've got to know, coming from that world of comedians, that they are the darkest of the dark. There's some you anger know? there. Oh man. Yeah. 
And I just love that. And yeah. Adam makes me laugh. And he kind of can move and, and physically he kind of waddle around and stuff. Yeah. I just love him. So you wanted to place that tone or that energy into a real framework yeah. in a way. Yeah. And yeah. let him be the comedic character he is, but, but to be treated as if he were a real person. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I remember at some, I think. Like if somebody really yelled like that. Right. 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 <laughs> Um, try to treat it in a real life situation. Like, what does it really feel like to have seven sisters that are that domineering and that that tough on you? But I remember very. I think Adam had the feeling. Wait, am I supposed to change what I do because you make these kinds of movies and I make these kinds yeah. of movies? And it was the opposite. It wasn't like it was. No, my my movie's coming to you. You know, it's not that you're coming to me. I mean, I, I, that was like clear. I was not like I. I want to get into this with you so that we can really. You know, yeah. Find the darker part. That was right, right. horse shit like well, that. Well, it's so funny because you're this. You're, people's idea of you precedes you. It's sort of like, oh man, this guy's like deep and fucking <laughs> he's, like he's you know he's a big big thinker. What <laughs> makes oh, these movies? What am I gonna do? What does he want from me? Why me? Yeah. Well, like, <laughs> Adam Adam saw Magnolia and he's like, do you want me to do that? <laughs> No, man, I don't want you to do that. He said that? <laughs> yes, he did. He said, because I can't do that. I don't do if, if nothing specific, just the entire movie? Exactly do you right. you want me to do that? Exactly. Uh, it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> what movies informed that movie for you? What uh, were you trying to do there? Those Fred, you know, Fred, Fred Astaire, Ginger Roger movies. Really? Yeah, because they were, they were a guy and a girl. They were musical. And they were 90 minutes. They were, the girl always had a nice flowing dress on. And, that, and I was just obsessed with those at the time. And like, and coming out of Magnolia, man, I swear it was all like getting through Magnolia. All that I could do to keep my head above water was to watch Adam's movies, was to watch musicals. Those musicals. That's what they were invented for. To, but they, it was for the country to get out of the depression. They fucking work. I mean, they <laughs> yeah. still, and they've got a, a long shelf life. I mean, yeah. they, you know, you feel bad about yourself, throw one of those on, you know. Really? Absolutely. It's a happy pill for me. Just watch Fred Astaire dance? Fred and Ginger? If that Anybody? doesn't make you happy, you better see your doctor. Something wrong with you. Yeah. But you do seek that out in film? That's your medicine? Absolutely. I mean, you know, look, if I've got a row of movies at home and you, you know, sit down on the couch to watch something and there's the dark, long, intelligent movies over here and then there's the lighter ones over here, my hand is always going to go over here and put those on. Yeah. For sure. That's yeah. the stuff I listen to. What, um, what, now when did you first, I'm trying to figure it out. Oh, yeah. So you work with Philip Seymour Hoffman in all, in all three of those first movies. Yeah. All the way through. We did so you, uh, five movies, I think. So you guys came up together, really. Where did you first meet? Yeah, him? but he'd started before me. Uh, he he he'd been around. Uh, you know, by starting out, we all kind of started out together. It was Riley or, or Phil, but they had a little bit more of a, a resume underneath them, right? Uh, which was really helpful. Even if you, they made four or five films, that was more than I'd done, right? So when we were starting out, you know, they had my back, and they were really helpful, just in. You know, from like that's where craft service is <laughs> to you know the simplest things through just just having a few movies under your belt makes makes a big difference. Sure, but you know, Phil was like you know he maybe had a long list of kind of not so great movies, but he would always be the best thing in it. You know, so you just liked him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, early on. I mean, obviously, as time went on. But as an actor, you thought when you cast him in Heart Eight and in, and in Boogie Nights, you were like, you know, this guy's it. I thought that when I saw him for the first time in Scent of a Woman, that I, that I just knew what true love was. I knew what love at first sight was. And it was the strangest feeling sitting in a movie theater thinking, uh, he's for me and I'm for him. You know, and that was it. Really? Yeah. Strange. But that's, and I, believe me, when I was a kid, I was, you sort of draw out like, you know, yourself, you know, like movie cameras and sets, just like eight, nine years old. And, and nowhere in it did I draw anything that looked like him. You know, I was thought right. like I'd have like Cary Grant would be in my movie, right. Harrison Ford. Right. But something happened when I saw him. Really? Yeah. That's beautiful. How important is the actor to you? The, that's, that's number one and everything else underneath. And not everybody thinks like that, I don't think. I would be curious to hear what other people's number one is. I mean, you know, not that we're making lists and stuff, but what else do you look at when you look at a movie? Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't really want to look at anything else. But what well, I think doing. it's interesting as movie making becomes more sort of high tech and distant and you know that that you know the actual physical organic idea of the actor or of the body becomes less and less important you're on to something there you know and look i'm not saying that, that it can't be a pain in the ass to try to figure out things with an actor i mean it can be because well, that but that's part of the struggle that's what makes a film organic yeah um and i could see people not having patience for that but i i love it yeah i love it I love working on it with them. and Well, I'm sorry for your loss, certainly, with uh, Phil. It was horrible. So let's go to um, There Will Be Blood. Let's go to the callers. Yeah. <laughs> First caller. <laughs> man, I thought Boogie Nights was great, man. His dick was big. All right, next caller. <laughs> right. Hey, when you were doing Boogie Nights, did you fuck that guy? All right, next caller. <laughs> It's got to be like Russian roulette going to those, those calls, right? I haven't done that in a long time. <laughs> All right, so, okay, so There Will Be Blood comes out right alongside of um, No Country for Old Men. <laughs> yeah. The, these are the two big dick movies. Yeah, yeah. These were like man movies. Yeah. Yeah? Both big, yeah. Wide, big cocks. Wide. <laughs> those two movies. Who's cocks bigger in this Western game? This is Showdown. I think theirs were bigger. I think it ended up being that way. You know? What, with the Oscar? At the old Oscar show. Were you show. bitter? No, I was, I mean, it's a fucking difficult did you get to any? sit there. Uh, I did not personally get it. The any. movie. Daniel Day got one. Oh, yeah, one, he got the one. And Robert Elswit, the cinematographer, got one. But Good. I tell you, man, it is hard to keep a fucking phony smile on for three hours when they get that camera on you and you got to go like, hey. I don't know. Like, I used to, you know, I used to just tune in to see how actors handle the disappointment. Right. Like, where they're just zooming in on, like, who gets it and who doesn't. And then you see, like, they read the name, just a, just a... I mean, it's... A fake smile is a tough thing to did do. Did you know you were going down? Yeah. You did? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the writing was on the wall that we weren't we weren't going to be up there on the I watched one. both of those movies several times. There's no reason to compare the two movies. It's fucking nuts. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's... A lot, it, most of the time, there's no reason to compare anything. It's just what the culture does. It's it's a drag when it gets turned into sport. All right, so again, let's do this again. What was that movie about? No Country for Old Men? I know what that was about. <laughs> what was your movie about? Man, that's about oil. That's about 
black gold Texas tea. It's about, but that's about. That's probably again that uh, family. Can yeah. I say that again? I what mean, about power? Power. It's about California. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, you get you hopefully start small, and then if it gets bigger from there, it's. I look at it. I look at that. I just think about that movie, and I think about Daniel and his boy. That's yeah. what I think about most. That know? relationship. Yeah. What would you call that relationship? Complicated. Uh, yeah, it's definitely complicated. It's not his boy. It's not his boy. It does feel like there's a there's a component of uh, mutual beneficial. Uh, sure. Behavior, or what have you? I, but you know, I also think it's a generational thing too. It's like. It's not a story I made up, guys that, born of that era, silver miners or some kind of miners coming west, working in those conditions, stealing themselves up to the environment and what's going on, and really creating families and having no room for those families, I mean, at all. But also creating this weird empire. Like, these, like the fact that... They, well, didn't that movie open in the hole? Yeah. Like, to me, that was genius... You know, this is just a dude in a hole with some tools. Yeah, and ambition. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was that the open? Was that the image that started the movie for yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'd read stories of these guys that were silver um, uh, prospectors, and it was that simple. And I kept having to read multiple books just to find out is is this this simple that you take a pickaxe down into these holes? And you chip away, and then maybe when you find something, you stick uh, dynamite in there, and you try to blow it up so you can get even further into. There's this the blowing thing. up again. There's it's, your dad again, <laughs> blowing shit up. Well, you gotta have production value sure. when you make a movie. Sure. We usually don't. You know. So, the, but so the answer is yes. You go go chip away. You chip away, and then you blow some shit up. Blow some shit See, up. There's more of it in there. Exactly. It's that bonkers, <laughs> you know. And then, you know, you wonder why this guy's not the best dad in the world. I don't know. But also just the, the, the politics of power and the idea of amassing power and then the idea of amassing wealth. Like, it, like you, you know, whatever happened in that hole in that moment, you know, that guy, whatever his ambition was, you know, became very calculating and, and very, you know, em empire-minded fairly quickly, it seemed. Yeah, I mean, as it happened naturally. Well, and then the, the sort of what's the difference between you know survival and ambition? You know, I mean, he wasn't. It wasn't just him trying to survive. Obviously, he was obviously this guy. Those kinds of guys that they were born with something above and beyond what most people have, which is just how do I survive and how do I make something for myself and something for my family? And when it sort of blossoms into something much more intense. Well, yeah, you feel like there was never enough. There was never going to be. Enough. You know. I don't know many billionaires, but I kind of guess that a billion's not enough for them, probably. Well, that was interesting, like the, you know, the sort of, the the agreement between the godless and 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 the, the faithful, oh, the or the two leader of, them? of the faith. Yeah, Paul Dano. Paul Dano. Yeah. The, the agreement, like it was some st struck bargain, mm -hmm. but there's this idea where it's sort of like, I know what you're up to, and you know what I'm up to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm the preacher. You're the dude with the money. Mm -hmm. I got your people. I'm the one talking to your employees. Mm -hmm. So we have to have an understanding. 
<laughs> yeah, anytime you can kind of narrow it down to something akin to Tom and Jerry or any any kind of that kind of spy versus spy uh-huh. thing, it, that's always when it seems to be good. When that movie, I like that movie when, it, when it's firing that way, you know, when it's really just the, these two knuckleheads hammering out agreements amongst each other. It's great. <laughs> you see it as a comedy. You know, funny enough, I, 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 I wouldn't say with a capital K, but I do think it's a funny movie. I, I it makes thought, me laugh. Yeah, and I, well, there's definitely some funny moments in it. But I thought that the 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 story of the false brother that that because like you're dealing with American, you're dealing with the the birth of American industry on some level. Mm-hmm. That part of the American industry mm-hmm. and the hustle is part of that. Mm-hmm. So the con man is part of that. Mm-hmm. So you know you're dealing with the con man and the preacher. You're dealing with the con man and the brother. Mm-hmm. And the only guy that's a straight shooter is the guy that's going to own the world. Mm-hmm. And he understands the need for these two or what's making them tick. Mm-hmm. But one of them's got to die, and the <laughs> and the other one's necessary. Mm-hmm. So like American, that's that's all of it. That's politics. That's everything. Mm-hmm. And then like you shot big man. I mean that must have been on your mind. How do you fucking make a frame big enough? to capture that land. And the thing that I thought was genius that you did was there were these shots where you just saw two guys over there and then there's a dude just kind of over there and then maybe another guy right there <laughs> with nothing else. Well, you know, take a camera out into the West Texas desert. I mean, you're from New Mexico. You know, you get yeah. out there, you, you look like you're making an epic and you look like you know what you're doing if you just have a camera in the right spot. Because right. Because it just looks yeah. gigantic. Yeah. So, and if you just place people in the right spot, it's, yeah, there's your perspective. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I loved it. All right, the master. <laughs> <laughs> I go to the movie theater. I watch it. I'm like, God damn it! He did it again. I gotta go see it again. So then, so then I go see it like three more times. And what I said publicly on this show is, I think it would have been a better movie if they just fucked. I just, <laughs> you know, that is a good criticism. I have to say, it's true. You know, it. it you know, you. But you're onto something. Um, you're not wrong. You know, you're not wrong, and I, that's probably why it's a bit irritating. Is because you just want them to fucking start making out and get together. Yeah, I'm no. I'm well aware. I think that probably would have made it. What what was that relationship inspired by? I mean, what 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 was that movie? What's that movie about to you? Is that a romance? Yeah, it is. You know, but a romance that can't work. Just looking in somebody's eyes and thinking, I know we're meant to be, but we can't be. You know, and that quite simply just that. Because there's a couple moments in that movie that I thought was amazing. That you know, even just reflecting on the idea of Scientology and you know, knowing fairly quickly that that movie was not about Scientology, right? Yeah. Uh, whether you know how much it was based on him or not, it was obviously based on Hubbard to some degree, but it, it was very quickly not about that. But the intimacy of the cultural landscape uh, in, in that movie, in terms of like people being vulnerable to that, yeah, and and the way there was an innocence to how these meetings transpired. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, good. If it feels innocent, that's good because. I mean, you got you got all these people running around. I mean, you're flashing me back. You know, this kind of all these new ideas. I mean, nothing's that weird. You know, nothing's that weird. I mean, there's death and destruction right behind you from that war. I mean, everybody's looking around like, give me anything, yoga, diet, sure, past lives. I'll take it. Sure, you know, we've, we've just been me. annihilated. Help me out. We won, but we right. Yeah, you know, it's ugly um, time. Yeah, nasty. But you know. I mean, look. I guess that's still happening today. I mean, look. You know. Well, that's not uh, not different than the than the seventies, right? In a way, 
I mean, it's not different if you're looking at it like that than inherent vice culturally. Mm-hmm. But I thought I thought there was some amazing stuff in you know what they got from each other because you know when you deal with these relationships where you have the guy that's all heart and all crazy and can't manage his shit, mm-hmm. you know, and you know they they're not destined to to be the leader of anything mm-hmm. but leaders feed on them mm-hmm. leaders take from them leaders use them you know as their as their heart you know but the the fragile one is always going to blow up yeah yeah and that dynamic is i think historical but uh there was a moment though that i thought was if you, maybe if you can recollect it for me because i can't quite put my finger on it there was a moment where lord dern asks him why he changed something in the book right yeah yeah he changes uh he changes the phrasing uh from can you recall to can you imagine see that's the whole, that scene for me is the key to the whole fucking movie mhm mhm because that opens it up from it's no longer a self-help situation right exactly it's a religion right and he knew that i mean that that's right. pretty accurately that's taken from Hubbard's life so that that interchange where a woman named Helen O'Brien had really sort of, she recognized that moment instantly and just said, this is, this is going down a bad path and it's going to change. I thought that was the most important moment in the movie. Yeah, it's good. Was it to you? Um, no, I don't think of that. When I think back at the most important moment of the movie, I I think of the the two of them sitting across the desk from each other. On the boat? No, at the end. Oh, right. At at the end. When when he sings to him? When he sings to him. When he sings, you know, just... That's where he just wanted to kiss. Just kiss. (laughs) Why can't you guys just... I know. I know. I know. I know. Why'd you get so hung up with all that weird concocting of weird alcohol? What, the booze? Yeah. The poison? Yeah. Too many shots of the poison? No, I liked it. Um, I don't. I don't have any problem with the length. I like. Of uh, um, I loved that idea of somebody making booze out of paint thinner and all this stuff. You basically just left over from those guys in the war that were, you know, getting into bombs and stuff like that. And that once you had a taste for that, you know, paint thinner, you know, a rubbing alcohol was what you needed. It was like a beer. <laughs> Fuck it, what do, you, what do you think that guy meant to that guy? What do you think that guy meant to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character? Because, I mean, there was this whole idea that there was this weird tension and this love, and then he had Amy Adams, like, pulling out his cock strings, you know, really kind of making him the man that he is on some level. I think... Slapping him around. You you can see it in in Phil's eyes that he's looking at, he's, I want to be like you. Right. I want to run wild like you. That's what I want. Get me out of here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And because he can't, that's what everything... That's why... But he's also... Because he can't, he's also... I don't know. It becomes complicated. He's setting traps for him, but he's not really. It gets it gets dark. It gets dense. You're talking about it like you had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I mean, you know what? I'm talking about it like it's a distant memory. I think to me now, not not it's a, a not distant, but I'm trying to recollect it in my mind. I mean, I haven't seen it in a while, and it's not been at the forefront. Have you rethought it at all? No. Happy with it? Oh yeah, Re- it's great. Looks good. Yeah, it looks good. Big camera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking big as, as big as this room you're shooting on a big camera yeah well, <laughs> paid off right it makes you feel like a big man when you get a big camera sure it does pay off did you use it on there will, uh, there will be blood as well no that no. was the first time you what that be 70 millimeter we were thing? doing tests and we were messing around and we couldn't get I just had something in my mind about how it would look and Panavision they we were just they said what about dusting these off I said let's do it 
<laughs> Who said that? A camera guy? Yeah. <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, pro- I want to work again. Producers like all around me day. dropping to the floor, going, "No, put that thing away." <laughs> uh, weren't, weren't those destroyed? No, exactly these are, these right. Are gross licorices. You don't want one. Oh, those aren't, aren't those aren't your. No, no, no. That's the replacement. That apparently here I like. I ordered oh, you're these, off. You're off. Yeah, you're I'm off. Yeah. I ordered these weird licorices from Italy, and then I read the black licorice. Like, there's a side effect could create hypertension, and high blood pressure. The one thing I don't have With black licorice. Yeah, it's weird. Like, it's a, there's a warning on it. Whatever. All right, so I think he did a great job with this pension thing. Thank you. Were you in touch with him? Who? Just be honest. <laughs> can't be honest i'm not gonna be honest i'm not no i i uh i don't i'm gonna just uh say no no why <laughs> somebody spent a long time you know saying keep me out of it so i'm keeping out of it keep i mean it. really just out of pure pure respect and everything it doesn't it just doesn't matter i'm not gonna you know. well that's fine <laughs> you fuck <laughs> Come on. No, but I mean, you, you, he he gave you his blessing. He gave me his blessing to okay. make the film. Yeah. And you wrote the script entirely on your own. Yeah. From the book. Yeah. He didn't have a draft. No, no, God, no. I mean, I, I no. He, you know, if you've read the book, I mean, if you can't, you know, there's so much material in there. Yeah. It's like, if you can't figure it out with what you've got in this book, then you're you're an idiot you know? but no but no one no one has really done it with uh, his books right what I meant to say by that was that there's so much material that it doesn't you know that it's if you dig it out it's there you but know? you tried to you tried to do cut a broad path here with that like I mean you tried to get as much in as possible for sure yeah, yeah. I mean that's because that's honoring yeah um I mean I wrote my sister usually reads things after I write them uh-huh and I had a draft that was about three, four, five inches thick. Yeah. And I gave it to her, and she handed it right back. And she said, I'm not reading this. <laughs> cut this thing down. Come back to me when you cut it down. <laughs> that That's good advice. You know, let me get, go back to the drawing board. Well, what what's this movie about? It's about Pinchon. It's about... That's interesting. It is about him. Yeah. I mean that's that's the first thing that pops into my mind, and I and then re- followed really quick right behind that. It's about the ex old lady that you may have, or I may have, or we all may have, who 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 does it for you, who still kind of has you wrapped wrapped around her finger, who that kind of that kind of um, mm. that thing you know that you can never shake. It certainly lands there at the end after quite a journey. Mm-hmm. But in that process, so what, what I started to realize, like there's something stuck in my, not stuck in my cron about it, because I, I took to that movie quickly and I liked it. Yeah. Because I like the language of it. I like the era of it. I like that, you know, you're dealing with a guy that knows that terrain, that invented that type of writing. Yeah. And that, you know, has the sort of gravitas uh, as a voice to play with those levels of politics and culture mm-hmm. and 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 deal with the stuff like like the politics of heroin mm-hmm. the politics of of late 60s subversion the politics of of the provocateur the guy who gets you know has to sell himself out to mm-hmm. get off his to kick a habit like i liked all that language i like the yeah. way heroin was talked about mm-hmm. i like the the sort of weird transition from that time when the hippies 
took over the culture and the resistance of the old guard to to sort of get online, you know, all coming through that one character that Josh Brolin plays. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, a, a, clearly a comedic character mm-hmm. that is crazy mm-hmm. and doesn't even understand why he's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, and like the thing I liked about this movie is that it weaves in and out of hallucinatory feeling that like, you know, what is real, what isn't real and doesn't matter ultimately. Yeah. Did you feel that? Yeah, I did. I mean, I felt that way when I read the book for sure, you know, Um, and then tried to do that in the movie. So I got that. For sure. Um, Yeah. In that, in that, in that, in that fog of, I mean, I'm not a stoner. I don't really get stoned, but that kind of thinking that you can do in that state where you do feel like your mind opens up and you're actually seeing things a little bit clearer but that right around the corner you are in a full-blown paranoid flip out right well that was that time and that that time and that was nixon that yeah i mean i wasn't around so i'm just kind of basically you felt that from the book and i yeah and i feel it from people that were there and that thing, it's funny because there's a little bit of this when you're talking to Chrissy Hine too and you mentioned this, that that kind of, again, any shift is always good. From smoking dope to suddenly you look around, there's heroin on the streets. It's like, man, this is not going to end good. This is not going to end well, you know. And that, again, a loss of a certain type of innocence, you know, that just seems to be good fertile ground for a story and that seems to be his preoccupation you know like when everything just sort of starts to get dark when it was going along so well um and i think about the book that i look about like so much I, I hope we got a little bit in there it's just how painful that still is obviously to him as a writer you know i mean he'd be 70 something years old and look back and write you know he could write about anything but he's still look, looking back on fucking it slipped away. Some, they slipped say, away. yeah, they took something from us. Yeah. Some got taken. Yeah. It's, and it, you know, it doesn't feel good still. And then we get like one of the greatest cameos in the world from Martin Short. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. It, it reminded me of this frenetic, there's a frenetic type of satire that like, I, I you don't see it very often. You remember that movie? Did you ever see that movie Walker? Yes. Yes. Okay. Walker is a great film. By Alex Cox. By Alex Cox, I sure do. Yeah, yeah. There was elements of of that type of like brutal satiric characters. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's man. You're talking my language. That stuff I love when things get like that. And did um, you know? Did you like? Do you remember this? The 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 Rodney Dangerfield sequence in Natural Born Killers. Yeah. Sure. Sure. That's that. That's too. great. You know. Look, that's like. Any you know that sequence lends itself to being able to do something like that. Having Martin Short, you know, having him being able to have Martin Short and say, you know, he's got a scene where he's his secretary comes to get him and says, "Come on, there's a problem with the couch in your office," and to be able to say to Martin Short, you know, what if you just drop your drawers on the way out and getting to that level of of vaudeville, right, and still kind of hopefully stay within reason. I mean, that's just like food and drink to me. It's great because you were able to do it with Josh Brolin too, whose character definitely tipped, you know, like you're like, what, you know, with the, you know, and you know, you held a long time on that banana, bro. (laughs) (laughs) You know, most of the times you spend as a movie director saying smaller and this book and this movie lent itself to saying bigger, 
which is a really exciting place to I be. I think you really nailed it. And I, and I don't think it was an easy thing because you're dealing with, you know, the, these layers of consciousness. You're dealing with, you know, going in and out of, of reality, not reality. Arguably, the entire film yeah. is, is, you know, outside of the bookends, could be just not real. Mm hmm. And it doesn't matter, mm -hmm. but you're playing with like that whole pension world of like, you know, who's on whose side, who's in charge, what's the power structure, you know, who's got the secret keys, mm -hmm. who knows what about who. And you go through all these doors. And when you finally see the, the one dude that is supposed to, you know, be the thing we're looking for, you don't even give a shit. <laughs> That's right. Where we, you know, you gotta get on. You gotta stump stumping for this film. You talk about it better than I do. Abs and you, you, it's that's that's pinch on, man. I mean, this is what you know. I I definitely feel good here because I didn't come up with this stuff. I just I just uh, just but ushered it ushered it into the movie. You theater. honored it. Yeah. You know, and 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 I, you know, because you know when you do, you don't. Th I think that I don't think that people have seen movies like that. It's almost like a, it's like um. David O. Russell's uh, I Heart Huckabees. Yeah. That, you know, you the, when you have elements of farce or burlesque or vaudeville or, and I, you know, I'm not even going to go surrealism because it's not that. It's not, it's not, it's not catch 22, no. but there are elements of that in it because there, he comes from a similar sensibility and a similar time as Heller. Yeah. But, but there is this idea where you have to suspend not so much disbelief, but you realize like, you know, there's enough reality there. Well, that's, I think that's the, the, the trick is that you never feel like this is just some insane product of his imagination. Right. You always feel that something is plausible and rooted in reality. And I think if you look at this movie, this book, it's not in anything that he's made up. He's obviously riffing on something that is is down as fact. Well, I as, think that's yeah. exactly what you're talking about with Pynchon and with these guys that live through that. Mm -hmm. Is that is you know the thing that sticks in their craw is that you know this stuff no one ever found out about it. Right. It just it just went away. And I think one of the things you're up against also is Pynchon's relevance. You know, culturally now mm -hmm. is like you're reintroducing or introducing for the first time. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the great literary geniuses. Who, you know, I mean, you know, people, young people today, unless they're really sort of like locked in or tapped in and they want to know about this stuff, right. they're like, what? And, you know, if you come to this movie without any real awareness of the backstory of Pynchon or or the beauty of the transition from the 60s to the 70s, yeah. and you're just looking at it as some camp, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, fashion show. Right, right. You know, you got to be invested in this. Absolutely. You know, the funny thing is, I mean, I I've only read his new book once and I didn't get to it again but it's about it's about computers it's about the internet it's called Bleeding Edge you know I don't know if you've read it yet but I haven't read a lot of his books but in Crying A Lot 49 was enough for me <laughs> but the point is it, that, that you know use all these email hackings and all this stuff that's going on and everything and here he was a couple years ago he's 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 he knows things that we don't know. I'm convinced of it. I mean, I really am at this point. Pension does. Yeah. I'm just convinced. Well, good. Then he's got you. He does. I'm hooked. So now, yeah, you're going to have to... Now I'm you got to figure cult. out... Yeah, well, well, that's not so much a cult. It's like, you know, it's sort of like, what if there is no there there? And, you know, <laughs> and all his... You know his characters and, and this whole thing, I this what you said earlier is like, there's a guy. Mm-hmm. You, you know... <laughs> You know, there's a guy. Yeah. You got some great performances out of a lot of great actors. I'll tell you that. Thanks. Yeah. Benicio, I hadn't seen Benicio Del Toro in a long time. Man, the world need, the movie screens and the world need more Benicio Del Toro up there. Why don't we see him more? Uh, you know, he's got another movie coming out. You know I, you know what? Being an actor is, is tough business. 
and you can have success and you can be one of the best but you would be shocked to think you know it's a struggle to find good parts to find yeah. good people to work you got with. joanna newsom in something doing something new yeah she's great she's great and who was the woman that played the ex-old lady uh Catherine waterston Oh, I don't know her. I hadn't seen she's her before. Sort of, I like her. She's sort of new to movies. She's done a few smaller parts here and there, but she does New York theater stuff. But she's she's pretty new to the the big screen. Yeah, you got a lot. Of, I, there was a lot of great, uh, a lot of great interactions. There. I liked his weird kind of like half silent sidekick too. Oh, like, Dean Dennis. Yeah, he's great. This is his first movie. Oh, and Reese Witherspoon. I fucking love her. Me too. Me too. Get in line. Get in line. She I know, is. but it's weird because I feel like some people don't really love her, and they should love her. Everybody should love her. Yeah, those are those are the kind. Of, then, then, then that's thumbs down for me. If you don't love Reese Witherspoon, yeah, what kind of fucking you, animal are you? You've got a problem. She's great. Yeah, no, she's dynamite. She's the business Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, always has been to me. Yeah. I love her. Yeah. This is the first time you work with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a second I she was gonna try to be. Phil's wife and the master, but that didn't work out because of timing and everything else. So, so you got nice to work. To work Did Amy. you get along with her? Amy's great. Yeah, um, I loved Reese and I loved Amy. I love all these dames. I mean, working with these girls, man, it's that there's a good, good group of girls. Yeah, on this movie. Yeah, Jenna Malone. Yeah, Dynamite and this young and Hong Chow is great. She's great. Just yeah, yeah. It's a long list, and they're all just been dynamite to work with. And and Joaquin is just great. He's great. Sometimes it's sort of like, oh no, he's talking like Joaquin and there's a lot of information we need. So he's going to have to get that out of his mouth. I'm going to have to rewind this when I get it on DVD. <laughs> he is a mumbler. <laughs> yeah. For sure. You know, um, he does a really wonderful thing. He's got this big scene with Martin Donovan where they're sitting across the table and they're making the transaction about getting Coy Harlan away from his family. And he enunciates every last word. And I just remember thinking, well, he can do it if he wants to. <laughs> you know? He just chooses not to, I guess. He likes to mumble. He is a fucking mumbler for sure. Josh Brolin, though, is great. Josh Brolin is like, a part of a dying breed he just is a is a man he looks like a man and yeah. he acts like a man and he's a great actor and he's funny and he's so funny um he's very fun to work with as well um i i can't say enough about josh brolin he's great i mean you know there was a time when i remember feeling like where where are the men in movies yeah. you know and um there's josh brolin working steady and getting good jobs astounding and, yeah and like in the real deal too, like not just a, like a good looking dude, but like got real chops and real range. Yes, like just fucking awesome. Yeah, like he, you could pluck him out of it. You could put him in a forties movie, you could put him in a fifties yeah. movie. He's he's yeah. like um, kind of there's something timeless. Yeah, Owen Wilson was great. Hadn't seen him in a while. Yeah, Owen Wilson, man, I love. Owen and Wilson. They, they, who, like that story becomes the story. And I don't right. want to spoil anything. Like you know, like it's possible to spoil. <laughs> yeah, it. I don't think you can. This movie is an annihilation of stories because there's a thousand stories in the movie i mean that's what pension's all about every sentence is a portal and that's the fun of it man i mean i can i know that it can be maddening i think for people but boy i didn't experience it i've talked to other people that were sort of like had like a rough time with it right because like it it requires an attention and and like even as books you know you have to sort of like sometimes you gotta like go back a few pages oh shit this is the all right all right that's the boat from okay okay all right and that guy's okay okay right yeah and it's harder to do with a movie yes because it happens very quickly yeah so yeah and you know with when you're with a book you're kind of kind of you alone in your room and it's it's intimate and it's right there and movies are big and just tell me one thing Uh uh-huh what did pension think of it 
I'm still waiting for that phone call, man. I don't know. I mean, shit. You are you are <laughs> you are becoming a pension character. That's what you're doing right now. Uh-huh. You know. You know. No, I don't. You know, um Oh, fuck it. I'm not going to get you fucking. Um. What? <laughs> not going to hurt the guy's myth. I'm not even pressing you for like secret information. I just want to know how he felt about it. I can only imagine that he's that he's happy, you know. I mean, think we did a good job. I mean, that's I mean, look, fuck. I don't know. Look, fuck. I don't know. Look at you wrestling with yourself. <laughs> what are you protecting? <laughs> oh, you got me all Now you got me all, all um bashful and stuff. Like right. red and red in the face. Um did you guys have some sort of weird secret agreement? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, <had> a, <laughs> we did. <laughs> and that's... I'm trying to fucking protect you, okay. man. Protect me! Yes. Do you know what could happen to you if I let you in on this? I mean, you'd be fucking... This, oh, you don't man. want this information. Oh, okay, man. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. You got just... I appreciate that, man. Beware the golden fang. No, yeah, fuck. What? Just, what? What do you want to say? Nothing. I don't want to say anything. Oh, really? What do you have? What are these? It's a guy from Walking Dead. He sent me those. That's cool. So you're, you're not talking pension to protect me. That's fine. I you know, I appreciate that. Do you, do you know the story that when they said um, the Unabomber? Remember the Unabomber, Ted yeah. Kaczynski? Yeah. And they had a, and they and then for a while there was a serious thought that that Thomas Pinchon was. The Unabomber, right? Kaczynski. Yeah, <laughs> he said, uh, "Nice guess. Keep trying." Uh-huh. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, well, I think you did him. Uh, I think you did him uh, a solid. I think you. you, you how, I mean, you work fucking hard, dude. I mean, you make big movies. Do you like when you're on set? Are you losing your fucking mind? Or are you just cool as a cucumber? a little bit of both i mean it depends you know i mean how do you keep the vision so tight you know how do you keep the tone of these they're so different all these films like do you use different cinematographers do you have a what, same cinematographer you know what you do you you know you cut out all the bad shit but i mean like but literally the way the fucking movies look mm. like they were shot differently i mean you know you're full of like you know close-ups and like it feels almost handheld in this movie mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and you know the the it feels a little grainier mm-hmm. than, than other movies definitely so you made those choices mm-hmm. well you get into it and you know you can maybe you got a couple ideas in your head about how it might look and you know what certain film stocks do and you know what certain lenses do so you start testing stuff and shooting stuff i mean we started shooting stuff with joaquin at my house about three or four years ago he had a beard and he shaved it into that thing and he came over one afternoon and I shot some stuff. And I shot some stuff with some old film that I had in my garage, like garage like this that was like out in the heat. And I used that old film. And when we looked at it back, it looked kind of like the movie you see, which is like you stumble into some, you, maybe you got a few ideas, maybe you've seen a movie that looks like this or a photograph. But really bridging that distance between a kind of half an idea and a real idea. You shot that on film? Yeah. Oh, so that's why. Well, that's one why, but you know, the other why was sort of getting this old film and it kind of looks faded and it's broken. 
and you look it up on the big screen at the lab and you go, well, our job is to kind of start making stuff look like that. How'd you, know? you do it? You get old lenses and you kind of expose it a certain way. You pick the right locations and costumes and you mix everything up. And Time travel with the actual machines. That's ex- Quite honestly, that's what you try and do. You try time travel. It's the closest you're going to get to time travel. Is But you got to use the old machines. Yeah, it helps. Wow. It's it's it, it's a leg up for sure. Using old gear is definitely a leg up. And you put your wife in there for a few scenes. Yeah, she was lucky to get the job. She was funny. I made her audition. Oh, good for you. <laughs> no, you don't want to give anyone a break. <laughs> no. But wait, like right at, at the get go, we we just have to s- s- suspend our disbelief. There's a PI that's got a doctor's office. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a pension thing. We were just supposed to take that at face value. I think so. <laughs> You made the movie. Yeah. You're just sort of like, I'm just going to honor this. He did a lot. He, no, he did a lot of explaining about that situation in the book that basically that this guy, Dr. Buddy Tubeside, whose office it is, is one of those B12, like a Dr. Feelgood oh, kind right, of guy. Right, sure. And so he's usually got a line of, uh, of, of speed freaks waiting out front of his uh, office oh, every to morning. Get, to get right. And then Doc has, I, I think in the book, Doc has done Buddy Tubeside a favor or two, and he said, you can have a room in the back. Oh, Okay. But you so, didn't feel the need for that backstory. You know, we actually shot some of that stuff uh, early on, and it just it was just too much shoe leather trying to explain all this stuff. So you're just but, like, fuck it. The, fuck it. The PI's in a doc. Well, I think that, because I think that introduces the idea of what is our reality. And and you thought that too? Yeah, I think it's exactly right. You know, you just kind of got to, and you got to do that, do that some of that stuff early so it'll help, you know, either yeah. people go with it or they won't. You know? Yeah, yeah. That, I, I loved it, man. And I think you do great work. And I've come around to all the movies. <laughs> <laughs> some I liked right out of the gate. Some I had a fight well, It sounds with. like in Heron Vice you liked right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. And I, well, I liked Magnolia right out of the gate, but I thought that it could be a little, a little shorter. A little shorter. Boogie Nights, actually, I grew to like more. Right. I liked it, you know, when I saw it first, but that actually gets better over time. Right. For some reason. Because it's, uh, I, don't, I don't know why. And that's a good thing with the movies. Um, the Master, I'm probably going to have to watch once a year. <laughs> because clearly you don't understand your own movie. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm just going to have to lay it on my own interpretation. But I think that's true, though. I imagine a lot of that shit gets laid on you. Like, you're a fucking genius. What do you mean by that? I don't, I don't know. It's not my responsibility, is it? Right. Yeah, some of that. Some Sometimes that. But that just means people are looking at it in a way that's intense. And I know that feeling. You know, that's, you, know you look at films and... But, you know, that, that's the fucking great things about movies. I, my favorite movie of all time is Treasure of Sierra Madre, which I must have seen <laughs> yeah. five or six times and thought, okay. Yeah. And then whatever it was, when I came across it at just the right time, at just the right moment, and I went, holy shit. And my, my life opened up. I thought, this is the best movie I've ever seen. And that's when I was writing There Will Be Blood. I just watched it over and over and over again. So whatever these things, these these movies, they're like I I do consider them they're they're movable feasts. In other words, they're you know you catch it on an airplane, catch it on your phone. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to see it? It's out there and it exists and it's going to be something different all the time. So. That's well, that's but I think that's a movie that not unlike Pynchon or not unlike a great piece of literature that as you evolve or music, mm-hmm. you know when you go back to it, it speaks to you differently. Absolutely. And I'm, yeah, and the treasure of Sierra Madre. What was it about the repetition of that? What what kept what kept 
hammering at you. But I, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't as if I was watching it going, I don't get this. I'd seen it and I kind of liked it, but it didn't. The end, the shot of the, the bags. The shot of the bags. It's great. You know. Do you like the end of uh, the killing? I love the. I was just talking about the end of the killing. That's one of the great endings. <sighs> Did you, you? You were just. You were just talking about that. I was just talking about that scene yesterday. To who? To uh, Riley. I was talking with John Riley. C. Riley. Yeah. I was. I was working on this thing that he's working on, and I was talking with him about it. And we, we were just talking about endings, and that and that one came up. <sighs> And um, Sterling Hayden. Oh my God! If I could go, if if I really could build a time machine, I'd go back, and I'd work with Sterling Hayden. He'd be at the top of the list. Great. Um, are you a big fan? Yeah. Have you ever seen any of his great YouTube interviews, sort of late in life, with um, when he's got the beard after yeah. he's, when he's writing the books? Yeah. I don't think I have. Okay. Go see him. If you want to stay up until four o'clock in the morning tonight, go check these out. I mean, they're great, amazing. Well, he was sort of like tormented, right? Very tormented because of the McCarthy stuff. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I, I keep them. I mean, there's a little. There's this character Burke Stodger in. Uh, yeah, that's referenced that I that I think I, I I can only guess Pinchon might have had a not that. But I thought the Burke Stodger character was the opposite. It he, was the opposite, but right. he was on a boat and he went right, out there. Right. I think he's adapted the Sterling Hayden thing a little bit. It's a very different story, yes, because Sterling Hayden was deeply troubled. The rest because he his named life. names. He named names. He named names. And if you, you know, getting into that whole naming name things, not that we're going to, I know we've run out of time, but, but man, there's a little bit, there's a lot there. That's a great, great subject. And it gets a little bit short shrifted. Did you see that Erwin Winkler movie? I did. What was that called again? Uh, Guilty by Suspicion. That's good. There's a documentary that I'm in trying, I can't find it. I thought it was called Are You Now or Have You Ever Been? And I, I don't, I can't seem to find it, but there's a couple good books written about it too. And just how, the level of fear that was put into people and the kind of insane persecution where you kind of look back now and you go, really, was it that bad? And to sort of inst- investigate it a little bit is that I do think it was that bad. Well, it sounds to me like you're percolating a fucking movie about the blacklist. <laughs> no, I, I got into the blacklist. I've always been into the blacklist, but through Inherent Vice, there's so much about the blacklist and that character. It was just another excuse to read more about it. I mean, any Did that excuse, character appear in this movie? Burke Stodger? Yeah. On screen, uh, you see him uh, at that uh, Chris Skylodon Institute, the loony bin that they go up to, and they're showing the hippies a clip from, from a black and white movie. Oh, the movie, right. And the guy's, uh, the guy's mouthing along with the- Exactly uh, right, yeah. That oh, guy, shit. that actor in that is meant to be Burke Stodger, but it's an actor named Jack Kelly. But Burke Stodger was accused to be a communist. Yeah. And then he completely flipped, and he went completely pro-American. Exactly. He splits so down, so- and he comes back miraculously- the boat is renamed. I forgot that part. Like yeah. that's the one these I gotta go see the movie again. All right, what's the next movie? What are we doing? What are I, you doing? I don't know. I gotta figure that one well, out. We still gotta run around with this one. I got a couple more months of running around. Or a month. Another month. Am I gonna get a screener? You should. Do you want a Blu ray? Sure. Can you hook me up? Yeah, I can. All right, we'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you the movie. Yeah. You can have my movie. Thanks, man. It's funny. You get through all this. You work on these movies, and then you really do. You get down. You got a little DVD like this, and yeah. you go, here it is. Yeah. That's what. It, that's all it is. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck it. Go ahead. Do what you want with this. Exactly. That's it. Like, I went through all that, and I got a DVD. All right, man. 
Thank you very much. Great talking to you. Are you kidding? I love you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, of course. Love you too. So there you have it. That that was my conversation with Paul Thomas Anderson. What a great guy. I learned a lot. Fucking very accessible. He's, he's a genius. And geniuses aren't supposed to be that affable. They're not supposed to be that, you know, humble and nice. Conversational. You, you expect some difficulty with a genius. Not so with Mr. Anderson. Go see Inherent Vice. It's really spectacular. I found it very engaging. You're going to have to see it a few times. I remember I told you I named my guitar, and I've never named a guitar before, but I named my 335. Uh, that guitar is called the Buddha. And I just wanted to say that it will not be played out here in the garage. The Buddha stays in the big house with Daddy. Out here, the Squire Jazz Master is what we play. Okay? For those of you keeping up.